but I want you to grab your Bibles and jump over to Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to continue in our series here, which has been, did he really say that? Go ahead and ask your neighbor, did he really say that? We've been looking at these statements of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount, some of his most famous statements. They are revolutionary. They, they change some things. And the reason we've been looking at these statements is this. The fact that when you go to Jerusalem and you look inside of the tomb where they said that he had laid, there is no body there for he has been raised to life. The reality of the resurrection causes Jesus' claims to not just be opinions, but to be fact. He's not a man espousing opinions, but he is the God-man who is revealing truth. Somebody say amen. And so, if he's the one that says truth, when he says this in his word, not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, shall enter into my kingdom and be saved. We need to perk up and say, who then is going to be saved? If not everybody who claims, Lord, Lord, is going to enter into the rest that is promised them, then I want to know who it is that will so I can be one. We need to take his word seriously. And so, Matthew chapter 5, you're there, say amen. We're in verse 6. I want us to go inside of what Christ is saying and discover what it means to live this blessed life and enter into the blessing that God has. Matthew 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. Father, give us supernatural ears to hear this in turbo mode. In Jesus' name, amen. What is he talking about thirsting and hungering? What does he mean? All right, let me cut to the chase here. Everybody here who believes he's talking about us actually being famished and impoverished and hungry, begging for bread outside like a person just depending on someone to give them alms. If that's what you believe, raise your hands. Okay. There's a few. If this is what he's saying, then every single person that has ever gone to a food pantry are the most blessed people in the world. What is Jesus trying to get at right from the get-go here as he speaks to a group of people? Crowds and crowds. If you go to chapter 4 and you read verses 21, 23, and so on and so forth, you'll see that he is speaking to people who are destitute, people who are broken, who are lowly, those people who actually do know what it means to be hungry and thirsty. I think that when we hear this, we might be, you know, connected to that, but we truly don't understand what Jesus is trying to get at here. What unites somebody who's hungry and thirsty? Think about that. What connects them together? I feel like our problem here in this country, we are blessed beyond measure. Somebody say amen. I go to my refrigerator and I got options. I got you know, cabinets full of food. I go to the pantry, there's food there. And I'm like, we moved and things are like all over the place. I have to ask my wife, where is this? Where is that? Because some things are here, some things are there. And I don't even know. But the bottom line, I got options. And when I think about this idea of hunger, right? 
Unfortunately, I'm sad, it's sad to say, but like my idea, my concept of hunger is, hey, I missed lunch at 12 o'clock and now it's 12.45 and I'm famished. I'm the only one that goes through that and experiences that here among all this group of saintly people. I know I'm the only sinner who needs God's grace. Like my son will, will say sometimes when we get up in the morning, dad, I'm starving. And I'm looking at this kid. I'm like, dude, you don't know what that means. But then the conviction hits me because the Holy Spirit will say, didn't you say that yesterday when you missed lunch because you had a whole bunch of meetings back to back? Didn't you say I'm starving? I feel like my stomach is eating itself. Some of us turn into the Snickers commercial. We become little divas because we're so hangry. But I don't think we really know what this means to be starving. You know, uh, doctors will tell you that you can go many, many days without starving, without eating. You, you know, once you go like two days, like you go through these intense pains, but after two days, like it dissipates and you can go weeks. But then when you get to about, you know, the 40th day, that's when your body starts piping up and speaking up and it starts saying, look, you need to pay attention. It is such an intense pain of hunger that by the 40th day that it says, if you do not eat, I will die. I'm going to start actually eating your other organs and your muscle and your bone mass. I'm going to start eating all of that because you have no sustenance within you and you need to do something about this. Otherwise, you will die. I think Jesus is trying to get to this picture. Not that I missed lunch today and I'm going to have a super huge big dinner to compensate for the fact. Or I fasted for a day or two and I've been on this Daniel fast that the church put on. And now it's day 22, my freedom day. Liberation is coming. I'm going to the buffet line. He's talking about this idea of being so hungry. William Barclay puts it like this. He qualifies hunger and thirst. He says, the hunger which this beatitude describes is not genteel hunger, which could be satisfied with a mid-morning snack or the thirst of which it speaks is not that which could be quenched with a cup of coffee or an iced drink. It's hunger of the man who is starving for food and of a man who will die unless he drinks. Do you have the picture? What's the bottom line? It is... Those who are going through this experience, these people have a single-minded, all-consuming passion for food or drink. See, the person who is hungry, the person who is actually starving, he doesn't say, man, I need to get something to eat. And by the way, can I have a new suit as well? The woman who is thirsty to the point of death, she's not saying, I need a quench of water. I need a, a drink of water. And also, can you get me a new Lexus? The only thing in her mind, the only thing on his heart is, I need to eat, I need to drink. It's a single focus, all-consuming passion, and that's what it is. It's a desperation, a single-minded desperation. Do you have this picture in your mind? Now, I can end the sermon right there and just say, Jesus wants us to be in that zone. And you can fill in the blanks. He wants us to be in this type of attitude, especially in this country where I have everything at my disposal. 
I've got the best of education before me. I've got food. I've got opportunities for employment, even though I don't have the best job or the education that I think I might need for that career that I've always dreamed about. But you have the opportunity to be employed. You have social services available to bring you assistance. There is so much at our disposal. Jesus is saying, I want you to develop a desperation that makes you single-minded in purpose and focus. That's what I want. Nothing else will grip your attention. Hello. Now that you're in this attitude, what should your attention be on? Righteousness. Blessed are those who have a single-minded passion that is desperate to encounter and experience righteousness. Now, what does that mean? Righteousness. Turn to your neighbor. Say, righteousness is everything that is right with God. Let let me unpack that a little bit. Righteousness can only be described and defined in relationship to God. Because God himself, he alone is righteous. There is only one that is righteous, and that is God. The word righteous can be defined as God's own perfection in every attribute of his. God's perfection in every behavior that he demonstrates and that he acts. It's God's righteousness. Is every single word that comes out of his lips is perfection. He is right. He alone is right. Finished. That's it. Everything that describes God, everything that is consistent with his character, with his words, with his work, with him, that which is always right, right action, God, righteousness. God is right in everything he does. That's why it says in Psalms 119, he says this, that righteous are you, O Lord, and the right are your rules. Psalms 145, the Lord is righteous in all his ways, gracious in all his works. Amen? The heart of the matter, God is the standard, the gold standard of that which is right and any deviation from him is wrong. Please let that sink into your spirit. God himself is the standard of that which is right and any deviation from him is wrong. It does not matter what the government says. It does not matter what CNN or Fox News says. It does not matter what the culture says. It does not matter what the school committee is putting out. It does not matter what the culture is declaring right or wrong. If it deviates from God, it is wrong. Now that was your opportunity to say amen. We got to pay attention here. This is the standard. If it lines up with God, it's right. If it goes a single centimeter, millimeter, nanometer, whatever you want to call it, away from him, it is wrong. To try to help us understand this, let me just paint uh, in a few minutes um, righteousness in a couple of different angles. I want you to look in the scriptures. I want you to grab your Bibles. Get ready. You're going to go to Acts chapter 3, verse 14. See, look at righteousness from a couple of different angles. Everything that is right with God, his character, his perfection, his thoughts, his words, his work, what he has fulfilled is righteous. It's the right standard. But look at what the Bible tells us. That number one, righteousness is who Jesus is. Somebody say amen. 
Jesus is God in the flesh, is he not? He is not a man who became God, but he is God in the flesh. He is 100% God. He's not half God and half man. He is 100% God. He is 100% man. He embodied both. He stepped out of eternity and into this world, put on flesh, and he is the righteousness of God. Since Jesus is God in the flesh, then everything about Jesus is righteousness revealed to humanity. Every action, every reaction, every word, every emotion, everything within Jesus was perfection. That's why it tells us that he was angry and he sinned not. That's why it tells us that, you know, Jesus uh, shared, he taught, he, he did all of these things. And every single aspect of his life was righteous. He was righteousness in action. Everything he did was the gold standard. That's why it tells us right here, it's several times in the New Testament, Acts chapter 3, verse 14, but you denied the Holy One. Peter is preaching. He's speaking to the people, what they've done wrong. He is speaking to the, to the, to the leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes. He is challenging them as they're challenging him and he says you denied the holy and righteous one Jesus and instead you asked for a murderer to be granted to you Acts chapter 7 which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute and they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one Acts 22, verse 14. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one. It's Jesus. 1 John 2, 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Friends. Jesus is not just a good rabbi who was of the Jewish heritage and culture, who spoke some great things, an incredible moral teacher. He is the righteous one. Jesus. But not only that, look at the second dimension of righteousness that we find in the Bible. Righteousness is who I am in Jesus. Righteousness is who I am in Jesus. When we realize that the righteousness of God is what it is, when we compare ourselves to that righteousness, right? The Beatitudes build on another. The very first one, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. God, I know that I have nothing. I am nothing. I could do nothing. I am a poor, pitiable sinner out here begging for a piece of bread at your table. Nothing. Why? Because we look at his righteousness and his standard and his perfection. And we look at our imperfection and we say, I am nothing. When we do that little exercise, and I challenge you to do that exercise, look in the mirror and say, who am I compared to God? And he'll put you in your place and bring you a revelation of his grace and his goodness because he doesn't leave us there. If we do this exercise, we will realize just how unrighteous we are. When we compare, we will conclude what Paul concluded in Romans chapter 3, that there is none righteous, not even one. 
So when you see somebody in church and praying and, and, and espousing all these beautiful words and they got all this intimacy with God and you're like, oh, wow, that person is righteous. Not even that person. Not even me. Okay. I don't know why we put pastors on a pedestal. I am a sinner saved by grace, just like you. Hallelujah. I thank God that he is not finished with me. In comparison, there is none righteous. Even those who appear righteous, it tells us in the Old Testament that all of our good works is like filthy rags. Like, yeah, no, let me not even go in there. There's an actual image to that, and I'll let you do some Hebrew word studies, and you'll find out what it means. In comparison, we're all filthy rags. And here is the lie, church, that we buy into, the lie that religion espouses, the lie that it puts out to the world, and everyone is working, working, working. See, religion tells us that a man uh, is able to attempt, he's able to work to restore his own righteousness before God, that he will be able to stand before God through his human effort and all of his practices, all of his rituals, all of his, you know, memorization of scriptures and all of his good deeds and alms given out to the poor and all these other things that we do will be able to put us in good standing before God. But the reality is that there is nothing, no matter how hard we work, that we will ever be able to obtain perfection. My professor at Bible school used to say this, there is no perfection this side of eternity. Just get that in your minds. Fix that on your hearts. Burn that on the tablets of your heart. There is no perfection this side of eternity. So when you look around and you see, oh man, that's a perfect church over there. Hello. Just thank God for the church you got and the people that you know and God, what God has brought into your life because there is no perfection over there. When you say, oh, this, this company is just broken. My department is just a mess. There is no perfection this side of eternity. There will be no job, no department, no relationship that will be perfect. Ah, just, just, I got to get out from underneath this relationship with this girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever. This marriage ain't working. I need to find somebody else that's amenable, that is passionate, that is going to be perfect. Hello, there is no perfect spouse. Except you, honey. I'm sorry. Forgive me. Please don't send me down to the couch tonight. Um, perfection is not possible, yet religion tells us that if you just work hard enough, you'll get there. And therein lies the beauty, if you stop and contemplate the beauty of the gospel, because I'm excited to share with you that this is something that is so wonderful if we grab a hold of it. And if you have not been able to articulate this to somebody, the world is hungry to hear this because we are trying every single avenue and every single attempt to get to this place of perfection. We will never be able to do so unless if we do it through the gospel. And here is the beauty. That in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it says this, He, being God the Father, made him, God the Son, to be sin. The one who knew no sin, the mean, that means the one who was righteous, the righteous one. The one that had never sinned, the one who never knew any brokenness, the one who never committed any adultery, any sin, any lust, any, any, any lies, any anger, any, any of these things that, that would have caused him to be defiled. This one who was perfect, he stepped out of heaven and he took on human flesh and he says, I will incorporate all of this brokenness within me on the cross. And he died on that cross, but on the third day, he rose from the dead as a manifestation that God had accepted his sacrifice and now he gives us the very righteousness of God. 
See, he doesn't say, I'm going to restore to you, Talita, your very best righteousness. I'm going to give to you, John, your very best righteousness. No, he says, you're good, your best, your perfection will not be good enough. Let me give you my father's perfection. When Jesus did what he did and God imputed that as righteousness unto us, when God the Father looks at you and I in our unrighteousness, you know what he sees? He sees his son. He doesn't see you or me. He sees his son and his righteousness. And that gives us access to him. Somebody say hallelujah. How good is that? Not my righteousness restored, but his. And did I earn that? Absolutely not in the slightest. Do I deserve that? No, I deserve the grave, death, and hell. That's what I deserve for all of my sins. That's what I deserve for all of my flesh. That's what I deserve for everything that's within me that is bent on going away from his standard. I don't deserve any of this that he's given me, but that is the beauty of the gospel church, that he is the standard, and now he makes me conform to his standard of righteousness. That is the beauty of it all. So righteousness is who Jesus is. Righteousness is who we are in Jesus, but then also righteousness is who I am becoming. And you might be thinking, well, okay, hold on. If you just said that it's who I am in Jesus, but now you're saying becoming, becoming is an active verb that is not yet fulfilled, but is in process, then what are you talking about, Pastor Brian? You see, what is true about me positionally, that I am righteous before God, is being produced in my life practically as I'm being made righteous before him. The Bible tells us that we are to flee the things, the works of the flesh. We are to flee away because we are men of God. We are women of God. We are to pursue righteousness. That means that we are positionally, yes, righteous, but we are to practically practice it and, and produce it and live it out and experience it and bring it into our lives in our world. Pastor, are we or are we not? Yes. Are we righteous? Yes. Are we becoming righteousness? Yes. It's both and. It's the already not yet. God has made us positionally, but yet we have to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. See, God makes us holy before his sight, but we still have to walk through this life. And every single day, be ye perfect for I am perfect. That means that we need to pursue. And now I say that word and some of you guys say, okay, let me check out because this ain't me. I know my character. I know my nature. I know that on Sunday morning, I'm on fire for Jesus. But you know, Saturday night was a struggle. For pastors, the hardest day is Monday after Sunday, after preaching all day long and multiple services and all that stuff. I only got one service and sometimes I find it hard the next day. But here's the deal. He's not talking about perfection. What Jesus is talking about is what is your heart's direction? Jesus is not asking us to be perfect, but he's asking us, what is the direction of your life? 
Where are you going? Another way to think about that and ask this question is this. Every single day, am I looking more like my Lord and Savior or do I continue to look more like myself? What is your direction? Just forget it right now. Just, just, just make, say this all out. I'm not perfect. Somebody just got freed this morning. I'm not perfect. Go ahead, say it. Let your spouse hear that. Because your spouse is asking you and waiting for you to be perfect and do all the right things and put down the toilet seat and, 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 and put the cap back in the toothpaste. And make sure you put the things organized right in the refrigerator. And she's expecting you to take out the trash just the right way every time because it's not her ministry. Right, honey? <laughs> Say it a lot. I'm not perfect. Look at your spouse. Look at your, look at your family. Look at your child. Look at, oh, man, parents, please, 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 please. Allow your child to speak to you right now and get a hold of your heart. Children, say to your parents, I'm not perfect. Parents, let it go. Let it go. It's not about perfection. It's about direction. What is true about me positionally, God is working out moment by moment as I grow in intimacy with him. And so the rub of the matter is this. The tension point is this. Am I passionately developing and cultivating intimacy with Jesus? If we can't say yes to that question, we know nothing about hunger and thirsting for righteousness. Number three, I'm taking too long. Or four, righteousness is what Jesus is restoring to the world. Righteousness is Jesus. Righteousness is who we are in Jesus. Righteousness is what Jesus is becoming and bringing. We are becoming righteous through him, yes. But righteousness is what Jesus is restoring to the world. Church, whether you agree with this or not, the world is broken. Just look around. The world is broken. We say that evil is good and good is evil. Like, I find it utterly, like, nonsense that we went through a period of time in our nation's history that was all about women's rights and all about allowing women to vote and, and, and allowing them to have opportunities in the workplace and all these different things. And there was a lot of work that was done. And now in this time, the day that we live in, we allow men to say that you can be a woman and a man can enter in a woman's sports team, for example, and dethrone a woman because a man's makeup is different. The chromosomes are different. The makeup, the genetics are different. The mitochondria within our body and the ability for strength and, and energy dispersion and all that kind of stuff is different between men and women whether we agree with it or not but now we say to ladies you got to take a back seat in everything that you worked hard for everything that you've accomplished in terms of having an opportunity now that needs to be done away with because a man needs to take your place how does this make sense how does it make sense? My daughter is a little baby and one day she'll need to go into the restroom and I don't want a man being in that ne next stall next to her because he feels like he's a woman. I, that, that makes no sense to me. 
I'm meddling here and I may get in trouble and you might say, you know what, oh, this church is getting all, all into this culture and stuff and this stuff is weird. But church, this makes no sense. Our world is broken. We, 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 we prefer, you know, go out there and save the whales, but we are killing babies upon babies upon babies every single day in the womb of mothers. And the mom has the right. She's not allowed to, to do crystal meth while she's pregnant, but she's allowed to go ahead and kill the baby. And we call that right. Church. If today becomes a day you say, well, this church is a little too radical for me, then you know what? God bless you. We'll leave the lights on for you. You can come on back when you finally realize that this world is broken. <laughs> Regardless of what we believe, there's injustice, there's poverty, there's disease, there's famine, there's crime, there's homelessness, there's human trafficking. You just pick an issue. There's kids who go to school and you don't even know if you're saying goodbye to your children for the last time. You go watch a movie in the movie theaters to be entertained. And you don't know if that's the last time that you'll actually get to see your spouse when you say goodbye because somebody's going to come in and shoot up the movie theater. Our world is broken. Every aspect is broken. It's directly or indirectly the result of our deviation from God. Okay? Romans. Go read Romans chapter 1. Because we worship creation rather than the creator, God has given us over to every one of our debauched thinking and depravities and yearnings. And what do you expect is going to happen out of that? More brokenness, more pain. Misery loves company. One sin will draw another. Deep calls on to deep, even in the negative sense. All right, I told you I was going to be quick, so I got to hurry up. God did not design the world this way. There's an aspect of brokenness all around us. The world is coming to the result of everything that we have chosen, everything that the world is choosing that is in deviation to God's gold standard, to his desire. But here's the good news. Jesus is on a mission to restore and redeem the world. Jesus is on a mission to bring back righteousness. Second Peter chapter three, verse 13. But according to his promise, God has given us a promise, church. Somebody say amen. God has given us a promise. He's made us a promise. If I can just latch on to the promises of God, I know I can coast through this world and I can make a difference and I can move forward because the end is not declared. I am of this world. No, I'm passing through. Be of good cheer for I have overcome the world is what Jesus has said and he's left us a promise. We are looking for a new heavens and a new earth which righteousness dwells what a promise according to his promise we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells friends i want you to listen this is way better than we think this is way better than we understand there's two words that's used for dwelling in the bible and that when he talks about this verb of of dwelling he uses the verb called sojourn and that means that hey i'm not of this world i'm not of this place i may be here for a moment but i'm just passing through i'm, I'm just coming through and i'm coming out i'm leaving i ain't staying but the word that jesus uses here is the word that means to make at home 
Jesus is restoring righteousness to the earth so that when righteousness shows up, it says, I'm going to get cozy right here. This is my home forever. He is restoring this to the earth. Read Revelations. You'll realize that heaven comes down. He brings it and he will abide forever in the new heavens and the new earth. And we will abide with him. As we talked about last Sunday, the dwelling place that God has prepared for us. As kingdom citizens, we know that God is working on his kingdom. We are part of his kingdom. And we get to be involved in seeing his kingdom come to earth and be expressed in the brokenness of this world. The kingdom of God has to shine through the brokenness of this world. Amen. Amen. God wants his righteousness to break forth into this world. So when you see hunger being taken care of, that is righteousness in action, breaking through his kingdom coming into this world. Those of you who serve in the food pantry, you are bringing God's kingdom into this world. When you are feeding the hungry, you are bringing his kingdom in. When we see those who are bound up in addictions and brokenness, we bring up Teen Challenge here again and again, all the time throughout the years, and they come and they worship God. Men and women who have encountered God in the pits of their addiction to alcohol and drugs. When those people are being set free, when we are being broken free, the kingdom of God is breaking in righteousness. How many of us can say righteousness has broken into my world? God has changed my attitudes. He has rocked my family. He's recalibrated the dynamic and the structure of my world. That's righteousness in action. God wants to step through. Worship team, y'all can come on back. God wants to step in and step through because Jesus is righteousness. We are his righteousness in him. He is helping us become righteous and the world is desperate, yearning, hungry to experience the righteousness of God. So if we can connect all of these dots, what is he saying in this beatitude? He says, blessed are the poor, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for theirs is the kingdom. He says all of these things. One thing builds on the other. There's a reality of who we are. We realize all this, and now we get to the point where he wants us to be wholeheartedly, passionate, single-minded, not distracted about this, that, and whatever. single-minded on righteousness. Practically, as we leave this place, if you give me three minutes, I'll give you application. What do you do with a message like this? Thank you, Jesus. I heard this sermon and now I feel utterly like I missed the mark. But you know what? Jesus doesn't want us to just have tickling words penetrating our ears. He wants us to know where the rubber meets the road and put the pedal to the metal and do something about it because we cannot just think about this as opinion. He wants us to respond to truth.
you jump out of a building, you got to respond to the reality of gravity. You can disagree with it. You can hate it. You can love it, but you are going down. Unless if you're in zero gravity orbit, you can jump and do everything float around. No problem. No consequence in that situation. But we have to respond. So what do we do? What does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness practically in my life? Well, first of all, think personally. Am I experiencing the righteousness of Christ in my daily life? Ask yourself that question. Put that on your mirror. Put that on your phone. Ask it as a reminder every single morning. Am I experiencing the righteousness of Christ in my daily life? In other words, am I seeing more of Jesus than I'm seeing of myself? Am I praying like John the Baptist? Lord, let you increase that I may decrease. Let me decrease that you may increase. Lord, I want to be less of me and more about you. What's the trajectory of your life? Not perfection, but are you becoming more like the master? Think also relationally, socially. Ask yourself this question. Am I experiencing the righteousness of Christ in my relationships with others? I've been estranged from my son, my daughter, my family, my brother, my sister for all these years. Why? You're a believer? What have you done? What have you been doing? Yes, there's their part that has to play, but have you done everything within your part to be reconciled to them? Are you saying no until they call me and they work it out and they apologize and they do whatever, then you know what? I'll 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 show up. Hello. If you realize that your neighbor has a problem with you, drop your offering. Drop your sacrifice. Go back home. God, I'm just so loving you. I'm just so worshiping you. God, my life is awesome. I'm an awesome saint. I got righteousness being birthed in me and things are going well. And Jesus will turn around and say, hey, what about the second commandment, which is one of the greatest? It's just as important as the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor like you love your God. Am I experiencing the righteousness of Christ in my relationships? When Christ's righteousness is in our lives, then the relationships around us, the brokenness that is around us needs to start changing. If you look at your sphere of influence and you look at your friend circle, your colleague circle, your boss, your family members, the people that you play with, all that other stuff, if you look around and all you see is brokenness after brokenness, addiction, debauchery, sin, issue, immorality, brokenness, pain, hurt, offense, all these other things and nothing's ever changing, then maybe church, we have self-righteousness and not Christ's righteousness. Maybe we got a nose up in the air, a snobby attitude, and we pray like the Pharisees. Oh God, thank you that I'm not a tax collector. And all we got is self-righteousness. Because if it was God's righteousness, then that has to permeate our relationships. It needs to reach over into our spouse and say, I'm going to call out the blessings of God in your life. I'm not going to beat you down and demean you and disrespect you and keep you down in the gutter. I'm going to see my friends and my family and my siblings. And I'm going to speak a word of love over their lives instead of prophesying sickness, disease, death, and destruction over them. Enough said. I don't know. I feel like preaching today. Number three. Think missionally, church. 
let's, let's take our eyes out of me, myself, and mine. Can we think holistically? Can we elevate our perspective? Am I leveraging my life, my skill, my job, my passion, where I live, where I work, where I play, so that others may experience the righteousness of Christ in this world? If we're citizens of heaven, then you know what? We need to make a difference in the world and the world needs to look at us and say, I want what you got, period. What you have, what is it? Tell me about it. Why do you live this way? How is it that you believe this way? How is it that you're in the midst of the most broken situation that I've ever encountered and yet you have a joy that is so un, like surpasses understanding? missionally to the world. I'll close with, with this story and turn back to the scripture. There was a modern historian by the name of Rodney Stark who wrote a book and this man is an agnostic man, by the way. He is not a believer in Jesus Christ. He says this, his book was all about the rise of Christianity in history. Look at what this man says. Christianity revitalized the Greco-Roman cities by providing new norms and new kinds of social relationships able to cope with many urgent urban problems. Do you hear that? The church that the world so speaks out against that people make fun of, oh, you Christians, you Jesus freaks, the church. Wow solved a lot of problems the cities filled with homeless and the impoverished Christianity offered charity as well as hope hallelujah to cities filled with newcomers and strangers Christianity offered immediate basis for attachments to the cities filled with orphans and widows Christianity provided a new and expanded family Wow. To the cities torn by violent strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to the cities faced with epidemics, fires, and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing service. See, the church throughout history looked at the broken world and they didn't say, man, I got to hightail this and go over here to the monastery and hide away. But they said, I got to go into the midst of the brokenness. Even the monks that went and be secluded to spend time with God, they would serve, they would work, they would come back into the broken, the hurting, and they would serve this world missionally. What would happen in our world if we started living like this? How would your family look different? How would the trajectory, how would wisdom be proven right by your children? Because you chose to live the righteousness of God. How would that change? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What's the promise? For they shall be satisfied. Will you stand with me? they will be complete. They will be whole. 
there will be nothing lacking in them. Pastor, I don't know. I got so many holes in my life. I got so many yearnings. I got so many loose ends. There's so many things. You will be satisfied. I'll give you a pursuit that is worthy of the effort. For his words are true. Lord, I thank you for this day. Lord, this is a sermon that requires personal reflection and response. I don't know where you're inviting people to move. What needs to change in our lives? But Lord, I know you set the table when you called us to repentance earlier today. Father, I pray that you would continue the work inside of our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would reveal one thing, one thing, two things, whatever it may be, that is practically that we need to change, whether it's personally, relationally, or missionally, Lord God, when it comes to your righteousness in our lives. Father, help us to step into what you want to do in us and through us. And with every eye closed and every head bowed, if there's anybody in this place that you've said, you can say this with 100% confidence. Either I have never entered into a relationship with this righteous one named Jesus. I know that I am a sinner in need of grace, that I have fallen short. That when Paul talked about not having one righteous, I know that I am one of them. And today you're feeling hopeless, but you need to receive the promise of God. Then please do not leave this place without making yourself right with Jesus. Come be in right standing with him today, justified just as if you had never sinned. If you have done this before and you've walked away and said, Lord, my life will be on my own terms. I will follow through with my own righteousness and I will work hard to enter into heaven my own way and I will do my own things. I don't need you, Jesus. Maybe you haven't said those words verbally, but your actions, the brokenness in your life, the things that sit in your spirit that don't sit right with Jesus testify that you're in this category. And this invitation's for you too. I want you to just come to this altar while everybody else is praying. I want you to just come. I want to pray with you. I want to give you a hug. I want to pray with you that God would reconcile you to himself. That today would be the day of salvation for you. That God would change and transform your life. Father, as we worship and close out this service, I give you the glory and the praise. And Lord, we welcome those who are coming home today in Jesus' mighty name. I invite you, if you are released from the Holy Spirit right now, you feel like you are released, please, no talking in the sanctuary. I want you to go in the foyer, talk there, talk in the cafe. I want this to be a holy moment here for those who need to press into the Lord. May God bless you. May the love of God, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the empowering relationship that we have possible with the Holy Spirit be with you as you go from this place. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.